want to ask questions to come up and uh, uh, start asking questions. Please do not make long comments. I want your question. If you have two or three questions, you ask one question and withdraw, and the second question, you wait your turn when others finish their question. So, are you sure you finished your dessert? Oh, sure, I'm ready to go. You're ready to go. Yeah. Okay. This is a question and answer period, and uh, please line up. Uh, That's okay. He's going to You sure? Okay. Austin Fennell. Thank you, Trevor. Uh, thank you, Trevor, for your address today. Simulated lots of ideas. You're using the Egyptian model as something, the Egyptian situation as something as a model. Mm -hmm. There, the power is quite easily identified mm -hmm. that the people wanted to get rid of. Is that some of the issue in our settings, that the power is more invisible and harder to clarify? And suppose you were to take the approach of saying, who are the powers that are very resistant? At the end of the Globe and Mail article, mm -hmm. or editorial lately, it said that those who were occupiers had no right to be there in the park. Hmm. Yeah, really uh, good question. Yeah, I think uh, one of the things is that uh, in, in what you see around the world is uh, where uh, the, the battles are really pitted, uh, say in, in Egypt or, uh, again, you know, Greece, Spain, places like that. The, the fight is really obvious, and, and it's, it's become so... Um, the two sides are so obviously opposed to each other that there's real danger here uh, for, for both sides, actually. Um, over here, we've been able to kind of inoculate uh, what goes on over time. And, and you know, part of that is because you know, when you have an economy that seems to be functioning well and everybody thinks they're kind of getting a piece of the pie, then uh, you know, the issues get obscured a bit more. And there's also certainly very much the... Uh, you know, kind of that ethos of uh, individualism and getting ahead and, and uh, you know, which to, for a long time has actually, again, had that effect in the United States. As said, however, the in the United States, the, the real differences have been getting wider and wider for 35 years. I mean, it's, it's actually quite dramatically, uh, you can see this. Um, but I think the... Uh, some of the obscuring things about kind of mythologies about how we think about ourselves and our relationship to other people or our opportunities or the state, some of those are actually becoming less invisible. And in fact, again, I think that uh, uh, young people growing up sometimes have been able to actually see that. You know, they... Uh, it's probably some effect of actually watching Jon Stewart. They can actually see through the quotes BS. Um, so, you know, I do think, though, that your point's a good one, that it's a lot of things have been obscured to this point. So we tend to, to think in, uh, to, to not cut through the abstractions or the mythologies. And, uh, but that's, the occupiers are actually trying to do that in, in some cases, very creative ways. Thanks, Trevor. Beth Mundell Atherstone. <coughs> This question follows sort of directly on the previous one. It talked, my question is about public discourse space, and you've probably heard a lot about that from Keith Gardner, one of your brilliant students. 
how, if we have, if all space, whether it's physical space or media space, is owned, then how can we talk about having freedom of speech or freedom of assembly when there is no space in which to have the public discourse? Yeah, that's that's a great question, and and it does follow actually nicely on the last one. Yeah, over time, what's actually happened is kind of we've had the the privatization of space, and you know, private property started out as literally as private property, but now of course we have it uh, encroaching on, you know, everything from uh, you know various issues of copyright, patent, medicines to, and in fact, ideas. You know, and and I think there is a kind of privatization of the. Uh, of uh, of our minds, it's actually being has come on, and um, and and it enters into ways so that people feel that not only do they feel they can't speak about things, but they feel they shouldn't speak about things that it's somehow inappropriate. So it's inappropriate to go into a this place to speak about this. It's inappropriate to talk in this way about a certain issue, and it is a kind of if I put it this way, it's a kind of colonization of the mind that has happened. And so I think groups like Adbusters and uh, and uh, now the Occupy movement are actually trying to liberate us. And who doesn't like freedom except the way we've normally thought of freedom is freedom of enterprise and freedom of capital. But, you know, real freedom means freedom to actually not just go places, but actually to think in different ways. And I think that's actually what they're trying to do. Bring back the notion of of the the public, the common good, and uh, and and places and spaces in which we can actually practice democracy. Yeah. Hi, my name is Larry Alford. I'd like to thank you for a very interesting presentation, Trevor. Um, from my financial background, I really appreciated hearing the words. It's a rigged game from you, or at least the impression. <coughs> And the more research I do into that area, the more I run into sociology as a, as a profession or a science. And there's a book out there called Trusted Criminals, and there's a half a dozen others that I'm sure you're familiar with mm-hmm. that study the aspects of financial crime versus regular street crime. And I think mm-hmm. that's in your field of study, and I'm fascinated by it. Do you have any comments on that, and is there any research that you know of uh, I'm not aware of anybody following the amount of financial crime and comparing it to the financial damages done by regular crime like street crimes, robberies, auto thefts, that kind of thing. I know the book Trusted Criminals touches on that, and that's a sociology text mm-hmm. in a criminology course. So that's uh, – I think there's a question in there. Thank you. Thank you again. Thanks, Larry. That's a great question. Actually, my uh, one of my uh, original fields before I end up doing political sociology and various things, I uh, I actually did train as a criminologist, so I, I still actually have a real interest in the area. In fact, I years ago, uh, before I went back to do my master's at that time, I uh, was a juvenile probation officer under the old JDA Act, so I actually have really kept up on that stuff. Um, one of the things, actually, I remember seeing years ago, and it would be easy to, to count it even now, is uh, we, we, of course, don't prosecute white-collar crime very well, um, if at all. Uh, and when we do keep people, we you know catch people in the act of doing it, we kind of like to hold them up and say, see, the system works, because we found this one person, right, who was you know, em- embezzling or whatever. Uh, and then, of course, in the recent crisis, however, you know, we have the uh, 
Uh, the case of uh, Madoff, who, you know, $50 million, $50 billion, 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 $50 billion. And I always thought, you know, uh, that uh, he had the most perfect name, I Madoff. He made off with a lot of money. So I just think that's, that's a great name. Couldn't, Hollywood couldn't have made up a name like that, actually. Um, but if you were to actually go back and trace the amount of money that is taken away from people through white-collar crime, and then you were to compare it with the amount of money that uh, is cost through, for example, petty burglaries, you know, break and enters. You know, most of these people are fairly desperate people who are, uh, you know, I, I will say it, they're not usually very bright um, and, and sometimes a bit lazy. But anyway, their, their total amount of damage is actually minuscule compared. Like you could add up all those crimes together and uh, they, they really amount to very, very little cost, you know. And, and I realize personally it's very bad for people when they get their house broken into. I mean, there's anxiety and all kinds of things. But the financial costs are really small compared with white-collar crime. But, of course, the Harper government is not likely to seriously go after people who do that because, of course, this is just good business practice. They were being clever entrepreneurs or something. Uh, if you're interested in actually uh, somebody who has done a lot of work in that particular field, who trained as a political economist and then at some point became really interested in the topic. Say a sociologist, I believe he's at York, uh, by the name of, um, I think it's Tom Naylor. And uh, Naylor brought out a book just a few years ago called Hot Money. And he actually tracks the, uh, basically the kind of the uh, illegal flows of uh, money around the world. So not just talking about the, uh, you know, those creative ventures, which in some sense, I think we're actually a form of a Ponzi scheme, so that's criminal. But this is literally like hot money, and it's connected to drug trades and laundering and everything else and how much phenomenal amount of billions of dollars like actually goes around the world. So, But it's, it's a great question. Hello, this is uh, Blaine Greenwood. I'm with Occupy Lethbridge as a media representative. One of the comments you made is about the manufactured story that the media already seems to have in place. That's exactly what I've found um, is the media, when they're interviewing me, the questions already give me an indication as to this is the spin we're going to put on it. Mm -hmm. How do we turn that situation around as a group? Mm. Great question, Blaine, and, and I'm really, really glad that you're here. Um, yeah, I, you know... To be somewhat charitable to media on this, and I'm sometimes not charitable to towards mainstream media, but you know they they operate under incredibly tight timelines, and so, and we all kind of build up schemas in our head, right? I mean, you go into a place and you already have some sense because it makes you feel good that you know who you're going to talk to and you know how they're going to act and behavior and everything. and and so they they go in there and they need because of time pressures because, it's human nature to kind of go in there with a frame. Uh, and because they actually, they, they've sort of seen movements before. So they want to compare and contrast and, you know, say, okay, it looks to me like this kind of movement. So, so there's a little bit of that going on there. Having, you know, been kind to the media, you know, there is a real problem here. And uh, so it, it, it's a problem anytime you want to change the subject, you want to change the conversation, which I think, you know, the Occupy movements have attempted to do. And uh, so the, the main thing I could suggest is, you know, you want to find certainly those alternative media. And the alternative media, and, you know, I, again, I was watching this wonderful video, sad but wonderful video from Al Jazeera yesterday, uh, 
there are these other kind of uh, media outlets. Small media uh, uh, sometimes work really well. Um, various public forums. Uh, yeah, any other kinds of way to be able to get around those. And more and more, one of the things that's happening as the mainstream legitimate is just simply turned off by people, then that does open up space for uh, the alternative medias and ways of communicating. Again, the new technologies, I think, are wonderful in that, in being able to try to get the message out. So keep at it. Keep trying to you know push the envelope as much as you can and, uh, and come out to forums like this. This is great. Thanks. Good afternoon, sir. Uh, my name is Balabura, and I fondly read your stuff you write. Thank you. I have, uh, you hit, lots of time you hit the nerve, which has been missed in our societies for a long time. Uh, I have a couple of observations or comments. I come from a family of uh, freedom fighters who were with Gandhi. And the movement was non-violent and disobedient, civil disobedient movement. But at that time, you know, there was a leader. Mm -hmm. But here I see it's a similar kind of disobedience movement. How are they going to proceed further without a leader? That's mm -hmm. one question. The other, mm -hmm. there was a, um, you know, I can't afford my politician. There's two things about that. One is that the politicians have become so expensive in terms of how much public funds they spend without even giving us any accountability. Mm -hmm. The other one is uh, in the democracies, to run for an office has been, it, it becoming, it's becoming prohibitive for someone who doesn't have the money to fight election. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's, it's, I'm watching here for 40 years. I have been watching in India. India, you can't even, you can't even seek an office in India yeah. unless you are a multi-millionaire and a thug. Thank you. Mm -hmm. and, and again, just so we keep the order uh, proper here, is it thug first and multi-millionaire second? Or, you know, just... um, yeah, no, I, I do think... Uh, and, and again, I think... Um, Leadership is an interesting kind of uh, concept. The, uh, you know, in some ways, uh, and I, I was saying here that it follows on a history of other uh, movements, should keep in mind here that, uh, of course, the Aboriginal peoples uh, you know, actually kind of started this in the idea that everybody is a leader, right, and kind of consensual governance, um, something which thoroughly threw the Europeans off when they first came over because the Europeans were used to the hierarchical system, and so it made sense to say, take me to your leader. And, you know, and it was always frustrating because democracy, let's face it, is really messy. And, you know, it would take forever to get an answer to something. But that was, you know, very much part of the Aboriginal community. And in some ways, I think the movement is trying to do that. At the end of the day, yes, you know, probably you do need somebody who's going to say, here is, you know, here's we have a program, we've worked this up. Our problem is that, you know, it's not clear how we ever come up with ideas, uh, you know, and, and the government's come up with ideas. It seems to be a very secretive process, and it certainly is not collaborative, and it certainly doesn't engage the uh, vast citizenry, the, you know, most of whom are very, very knowledgeable and, and have some real input to give to things. So, um, and I think the people in the Occupy movement, though, do realize that, you know, at some point there, it, it will morph into something more programmatic. At, um, at some point, I suspect also somebody will be able to uh, 
in the formal political system, be able to actually mobilize and bring together these supporters, and hopefully they will not be let down because we've seen that too often. And uh, you know, just to, you know, I think one of the most evil things you can do to people is to uh, promise them hope and then steal it away. Um, and those of you who know that I've spoken on my disparagement of the president to the south understand that I, I think he's basically done that, uh, perhaps at his own peril and that of the Democratic Party in the long run. In terms of money in politics, uh, I think you know for sure we need to get money out of politics and we could have better rules around uh, uh, the um, controlling that money coming in and also supporting people on a more equal basis. But one of the things that I've come to realize over the years is that even if you constrain formal amounts of money that goes into politics, the problem is all that money kind of third-party advertising and and the leverage that large corporations can give in terms of creating our thoughts about what is right and natural and proper. So, for example, if if the media holds, uh, you know, corporate media, you know, newspapers, television, radio, all those annoying talk shows, uh, if, if they keep thumping away at you all the time with the corporate message, the corporations don't have to fund the parties because they've controlled the context in which we think about everything, right? So in some sense, what we need to think about is public ownership of some very vital things, you know, public banks, you know, back to some notion of uh, public transportation. I don't know, but we need to somehow break up all those corporations and we need to get control of them because they control the context in which we think about issues. And, and just taking money out of formal politics is not, I think, going to totally solve the problem. Hi, my name's Debbie Gregorash, and I attend the uh, Occupy Lethbridge Assemblies once in a while when I can, and um, they're very interesting, and I've learned a lot. Uh, if you're on Facebook, go find Occupy Lethbridge, because the stuff they post on there is absolutely amazing. So my learning curve is way up. Um, I wanted to ask you, I've, I've been thinking about what happened at the uh, G20 in Toronto and the incredibly abusive uh, um, actions of the police on those people. And I was just wondering, um, uh, there, was a, there was a good, oh, that policeman in New York, the retired policeman who held up a sign that asked his fellow uh, New York Police Department fellows um, not to be mercenaries for Wall Street. And I'm very interested in uh, <laughs> when do you think a, a country becomes a police state? Hmm. When would you start to get nervous about this? Is it now? Hmm. <clears throat> uh, and, and so the news release for Occupy Lethbridge is on that table there, if you want to have a read. Yeah, there is, there is always a danger of uh, the police. Um, well, I wouldn't say getting outside of civilian authority, because it's quite often civilian authority actually sicks the police on people. One of the things I was saying at the table here earlier is that, first of all, the, you know, people act according to they, they're, they're given a hat they have to wear. 
and police and and the military and police are basically a paramilitary operation anyway always are uh, coming into that with the notion that they're defending the state. And unfortunately, the state doesn't necessarily always mean the people. Police are also faced with a really interesting problem where um, the anger of the people that is focused at somebody who's over here who you never come in contact with because they actually live most of the time in Geneva or they you know, are often the Caymans or whatever. So there's this disjuncture between... The, the source of the anger and the people who are angry, right? And so police and a number of other actual occupations are actually quite often caught in the middle of it. Um, and, and given that they have this very particular role, though, they then act out in the way that you would sort of expect. Every once in a while, it does, however, break down in really interesting ways. You mentioned the video of the police officer in New York, and if you haven't seen it, uh, it came to my desk a couple of weeks ago. Also, a video of a very huge football player-sized member of the American military, uh, African-American guy who was there in New York. And the police are, again, uh, starting to, um, you know, push aside the uh, the protesters, and they're kind of being very aggressive in, in closing them down and pushing them down the street. And this guy starts berating these people. It goes on for like 20 minutes. Somebody was there with a camera. He so embarrasses these police officers. I mean, it's it's really quite interesting. Yeah, as as social psychology, they are cowering and they're ashamed. He's saying, you know, I was over in Iraq and I saw my buddies killed, and you know, and I was fighting for democracy, and yeah, you know, and what are you guys doing? How can you stand yourselves? How do you look in the mirror? And these guys are all going. And, and, and they don't they don't try to tackle this guy. I and mean, there's 50 police officers there at all. And this guy, like I said, he's just huge. But, I mean, there's 50 of them. And they all just start backing off. Maybe they just think he's totally crazy you know, or something. But they don't know what to do with it because he's confronted them in a kind of very human, personal way of saying, just a second, take off your hat for a moment and think about your relationship to other Americans. These are just your friends, your neighbors, your relatives, right? These are just ordinary people, just as you are, right? So it's a very interesting kind of moment. Um, the other thing I'll say, and I mentioned earlier about Wisconsin, uh, the police officers in Wisconsin, the police officers in Wisconsin actually took sides with the people who were occupying uh, because they themselves felt that they were going to be the next ones under attack. So they actually sided with the, uh, the people occupying the Wisconsin legislature there, so... My name is Van. Uh, my name is Van Christou. Thanks so much uh, for a fascinating uh, topic, which obviously is of great interest to a number of people in our community. It seems that uh, our capitalist system has uh, this habit of having uh, psychopaths r- rise to the top of a lot of our great corporations. Uh, example: Enron. Uh, I could go down go down the list uh, without, uh, but I won't take the time to do that. In your studies uh, regarding the the, uh, the the wrong things that are going on in in, in our society, do you see any filters uh, that are available to us that can prevent that sort of thing from happening within our capitalist system? Okay. 
great question to finish off on. Uh, yeah, I, I do think the uh, you know the more people become aware of the issues, I mean that kind of insulates us to some extent. I do think that you know we have to become much more engaged, and one of the things that we've kind of lost over time is the capacity for uh, creative engagement. I think that you know it's. It's not a skill you're born with. You actually need to be trained into it. And so the more you do democracy, the more you learn how to do it. And I think if there's one thing that the that I'm really impressed with with the young people of, of Occupy, and again, I understand that a lot of people are frustrated with the slowness, the messiness of give us an answer, right? But I do think that the practice of democracy, the young people who are coming through this movement are in some say, sense enacting roles and ways of behaving that will hopefully continue down the road and will revitalize uh, our public institutions so we can save democracy in this country.